0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, as a student at Florida A&M University in the early 1960s, Cordell Petway peacefully protested for civil rights while facing violent opposition.
1: I thought it was very horrific. And even to this day, it's unimaginable and had I not experienced some of it it would still be hard for me to believe that people were treated in such an inhumane manner.
2: We'll discuss secret fraternal organizations in Florida by about the end of the 1920s. This is really where they reached their peak in the United States and in Florida.
0: And talk about the impact of the 1928 hurricane on Belle Glade all that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
1: It's been a long Time coming, but I know a change gonna come.
0: In the spring and summer of 1961, small groups of volunteers called Freedom Riders faced life-threatening violence to integrate interstate travel in the South. On July 24, 1961, 20-year-old Florida A&M University student Cordell Petway found herself behind bars after taking a drink from an airport
1: water fountain. The only real physical confrontation was when they snatched us up and put us in the paddy wagon at the airport. Uh, when we got to the jail, of course we were fingerprinted and they did the mug shots. I don't know what happened to uh, my beret or the dress that I had on. And I know I had a small piece of luggage and I don't know what happened to that. And it's, that part is somewhat of a blur after we, after they did the fingerprinting and the mugshot, uh, the next thing I heard was a big clink clink when they put us in the jail cell. Now, my dad and my brother were in a jail cell together with other Freedom Riders. I was not. I was put in a jail cell with two female from the surrounding area for some criminal activity. And I was somewhat almost more afraid in that situation than the actual riot itself, because not everybody embraced the movement. Uh, Oftentimes you would hear people say, you know, we are doing just fine, why don't you go home? Why didn't you stay home? So I didn't know what their position about the civil rights activities were. So that was kind of unnerving for me.
0: Cradell Petway's father was the Reverend Matthew Petway, an associate of civil rights activists, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy she became aware of racial inequities at a young age.
1: I first became aware, and I think I was about 11 years old, going to junior high school and having to walk past all white schools only to walk about a mile or two further. And I didn't understand the why, because racism and segregation were topics that were not openly discussed in my home.
0: As Cradell Petway got older, her father insisted that she participate in civil rights activities, but before that, there were other lessons to be learned about different social norms for black and white society.
1: There was one very, very cold day. I don't remember what month. Uh, We used to have insurance people to come door to door to collect the insurance premiums on life insurance policies. And this particular day happened to have been a white man and he knocked on the door, I answered the door, and he said, "Uh, is Ernestine in? Ernestine was my mother's name, and I said, you mean Mrs. Petway?" So he kind of flushed and turned red, and I said, well, she'll meet you at the back door. So my mother rushed, and she said, what's going on? I said, the insurance man is here. He's coming around to the side. So that was the long and short of that. So my mother said, why'd you do that? And I said he asked for an esteem, and I said it's not your friend, not anybody that you really know, and it's Mrs. Petway, you know, to others.
0: Mrs. Petway explained to her daughter that it wasn't unusual for white people to address black people by their first names, not showing the same respect that they would expect in return. Cordell Petway went on to college, attending Florida A&M University, where she worked on voter registration and other civil rights efforts.
1: Well I actually started college in 1958 at the junior college in Pensacola because my father and I had a standoff as to where I was going to school and I didn't want to go where he <laughs> wanted me to go so waited till the last minute and the junior college was the only place that I could go at such a late date so I ended up going to junior college at home for a year and then I transferred to Florida AM University in 1959 for the fall session and I was, let's see, 1959, I was still there in 1961. And then at the end of the spring session, I went to Montgomery, Alabama, where my dad was a pastor and teacher. And I had been involved in the civil rights um, movement prior to that. As early as the age of probably, I'll say 17 or 18, I was volunteered to work in the NAACP office and um, at that time it was also the Montgomery Improvement Association. And I worked with their voter registration, assisted people in completing the application process and explaining to them that it was safe uh, for them to do that. Also I did a lot of the clerical work in the office in terms of arranging rides to the polls if it was an election year.
0: The first group of Freedom Riders left Washington, D.C. in May 1961 on a bus bound for New Orleans. They made it as far as Anniston, Alabama when their bus was attacked and set on fire. The passengers were injured and barely escaped with their lives. Credell Petway heard about the violence in her dorm at
1: Florida A&M. I thought it was very horrific. And even to this day, it's unimaginable and had I not experienced some of it, it would still be hard for me to believe that people were treated in such an inhumane manner.
0: Immediately after the violence in Anniston, civil rights leaders, including Reverend Petway, decided that the Freedom Rides must continue. He enlisted his son Alfonso, friend Cecil Thomas, and his daughter Cradell to attempt the integration of air transportation facilities.
1: We flew from Montgomery, Alabama to Jackson, Mississippi. When we got to Jackson, Mississippi, the airport terminal was locked. We could not enter. We would walk from the plane uh, and tarmac around to the front. And we stopped to get water. They wouldn't let us drink from the water fountain. My dad was persistent, and I was standing beside him like a two-year-old instead of the 20-year-old that I was. When he drank, I attempted to drink also, and I was snatched up by my arm, and he was told, you need to come on with us. They had the paddy wagon waiting, and there were other, I'll say students, that I was not aware of uh, that they had picked up from some other location, and they took us to Hines County Jail.
0: Cordell Petway and her fellow travelers were charged with breach of the peace The arrest was expected, but violence was also a possibility, as the attack in Anniston had demonstrated. Some civil rights leaders admired the Freedom Riders' courage, but thought that their actions were dangerous or even reckless.
1: I would tend to disagree with being reckless because the Freedom Rides were well-planned and well-thought-out, and everybody who participated had a commitment to that, so they were not just reckless acts, and they were not even random, so to speak. Dangerous, yes, but certainly not a reckless act. And other students that in Nashville were so committed to that ride, they had even done their last and Testaments.
0: The Freedom Riders were a racially diverse group of students, clergy, and others, with almost an equal number of black and white people participating. After the summer of 1961, Cordell Petway continued peaceful demonstrations for equality and justice. At one march in downtown Tallahassee, she was detained and taken to a holding facility at
1: the fairgrounds. I was jailed once in Tallahassee. The conditions were so putrid that I could not stay more than a few hours. They shot water on us from the fire hydrants, sick dogs on us, and threw tear gas into the crowd. And I became nauseated from the tear gas, as well as other conditions, where we were housed at the fairgrounds. One of my schoolmates reminded me, I said, how did we even get there? And they said they took us on a school bus. I knew we got, you know, went to the fairgrounds. But there are a few disconnects for me, and not solely due to age, but I think, you know, from the emotional trauma, some of, uh, I just probably, had blocked out somewhat. So that jail stint was very, 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 very brief. And when I went to the dorm that night, the dorm mother insisted that I go to the campus hospital, and I spent the night and part of the next
0: day there. In the mid-1960s, Petway was not as active in civil rights demonstrations, focusing instead on marriage and motherhood. When she went back to work in 1967 at the Veterans Administration in St. Petersburg, her previous civil rights activities caused some red flags
1: to be raised. When I filled out my application, and of course was fingerprinted there, they asked me had I ever been arrested for a crime. And I answered no. Well, I didn't think it was criminal activity. So when my fingerprint report came back, I was called to the personnel office. And so she said, uh, one of the questions on there, and I said, no, so she says, we got your fingerprint report back and it shows something different. And after the assistant personal officer told me what the report showed, and I said, oh, I didn't consider that a crime. So she said, well, we need an explanation so we, you know, before you're completely cleared. So I explained what had happened, and of course I kept my job.
0: Crudell Petway believes that young people are more aware of what is happening today, such as the Black Lives Matter movement and protests over the killing of George Floyd, but she thinks that some appreciate the work of previous generations of activists.
1: I think somewhat, but I don't know that they really grasp the depth of what happened. And I would also say they're only getting snippets of it maybe during Black History Month in the schools, and if they watch the news, or you know hear something else about it somewhere. But I don't think they really realize the gravity of the situation as to what happened. And I can also understand that unless it's something that you witness firsthand, it may not have as much meaning or as much effect. But I would say that some of them have a nodding acquaintance with it. Cordell
0: Petway was a freedom writer and civil rights activist in the early 1960s when she was a student at Florida A&M. It's been a long,
1: a long time coming, but I know the change gonna come.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Watch our award-winning television series, Florida Frontiers, anytime at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, you can find great books on Florida history and culture, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The world
1: tries in vain our secrets to
0: gain and still let them wonder and guess on. They ne'er can define a word or a sign of a free and accepted mason. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, a building just down the street from the Library of Florida History that was built in the 1920s has a Masonic symbol on its facade, but the Masons have been in Florida since the colonial period,
2: right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. The Masonic Temple, or the Order of the Freemasons, dates all the way back to, actually to England. So during the British period in Florida's history from 1763 to 1783, that's when we see the beginnings of the Freemasons or the Masonic lodges in Florida dates to that time period. In fact, the very first lodge was named Grant's East Florida Masonic Temple, Lodge Number 142, and it was headquartered in St. Augustine, which was, of course, the colonial capital of East Florida. Later on in 1771, there was a St. Andrew's Lodge that was chartered in Pensacola, which represented the population center. In West Florida. And these were fairly short lived. Of course, by 1783, the Spanish came back and kicked all these organizations out. But then in the 19th century, 1821, when Americans began moving back into Florida, building up what would become Middle Florida in the cities of Tallahassee, Pensacola was getting much larger, West Florida and that area, they brought with them these fraternal organizations. And that's essentially what they are, or were rather community groups that were comprised primarily of businessmen and men that had a level of stature within a community. So these were, you know, bankers and lawyers and politicians and folks like that originally in the two main groups that splintered off from England, the Freemasons and also a group called the International Order of Odd Fellows, which also started in England, was brought over to the United States and made its way into Florida in about the 1830s, 1840s. Now these organizations really kind of reached their heyday in the late 19th century, so post-Civil War, into the beginning decades of the 20th century. So by about the end of the 1920s, this is really where they reached their peak in the United States and in Florida. There were tens of thousands of individuals who were a member of some kind of club or fraternal organization, whether that was the Masons or the Odd Fellows. There was a group called the Order of the Red Men. There were several other groups founded throughout the United States that eventually made their way into Florida and so many people up to about 20% of Florida's population by the turn of the century were members of at least one of these organizations. And again, they started out as community groups. So today there's a lot of lore that sort of surrounds for instance the Masons, you know, about the secrecy of the society because there's a level at least of kind of secret activity in terms of how they go about their rituals and their these costumes and things like that and for different organizations that varied. But at the very core these groups were formed to help in individual individual communities. So for example, an immigrant group coming to America would form these enclaves, and they would also form these self-help organizations. And this is particularly true, especially after Reconstruction, for African Americans in Florida who were denied originally entrance into a number of these organizations, so they formed their own. So they couldn't get a charter in the United States. A lot of them went back to England to get the charter that then formed an organization here in the United States. So they became these internal sort of self-help groups. They would pay for life insurance for their members help with community care they they set up orphanages throughout Florida to help really anybody who was in need and that's kind of how the branding evolved in the 20th century away from kind of these secret boys only clubs into really integral parts of Florida's larger cities but also the rural areas that were developing throughout the state
0: although some of
2: these groups were
0: secret societies you have here some journals dedicated to the activities of these fraternal
2: organizations in Florida Yeah, you're right. Not so secret if they're putting out uh, these monthly journals. What we're looking at here is a collection of magazines called the Fraternal Record, journal devoted to the interests of Masonry, Odd Fellowship, Knights of Pythias, Red Men, and Kindred Organizations. This magazine was printed in Jacksonville. We have a run from about 1929 to the mid-1940s, so we don't have a complete set. They actually started publication in the 1890s. And when you scroll through some of these magazines, you'll kind of see a very common theme. First of all, there's not a whole lot of organizations. So if you were to look at this, you'd probably think, oh my gosh, this doesn't make sense. These really are secret societies. They sort of just throw articles all over the place. There's not a table of contents or anything like that. And then throughout the magazine, there are advertisements for different organizations and businesses and stuff in Jacksonville and Key West and these other places. But within each magazine, you'll see a common theme. And for the most part, all they're trying to do is get new members. (laughs) So it's like this self-perpetuating thing. Each magazine, they're saying, you as a member of the Knights of Pythias, go out and get five new members. You, a mason, go get five new members to try and continually grow. Now, of course, there were dues and things like that. Folks had to pay to be a member of these organizations. But they're interesting. And this is really important, I think, for genealogists or for researchers. At the end of each magazine, they have a list of the lodges or camps or whatever they were called at the time, the actual groups themselves throughout the state, they show the group number, the name of the camp or the lodge, and then they also show a number of individuals who were directors or were in leadership positions throughout these communities. So if you were looking at a particular person and wanted to know their genealogy, their history within, say, Chipley, Florida, you could find that individual if they were a member of one of these organizations and then trace their lineage and their history through the organization's history, which often lasted for many of these people for decades. They were members of these groups for life. Again, there were other benefits like life insurance and things like that. But another common theme, too, with a lot of these groups is that they promoted a vision, at least, of civility, of some sort of community involvement, of almost a utopian kind of vision that you see that was very, very popular, especially around the progressive era in the United States. And that's why I think a lot of these organizations flourished especially in Florida. You know, you had a southern state that was evolving into this new South, post-Reconstruction South, and then later post-progressive era South. So These organizations kind of took root with a newer demographic of people moving into Florida. And you can kind of see that in the number of lodges that were formed. Here we're looking at an issue from 1944. And in Jacksonville alone, there were over 20 lodges just within the city of Jacksonville for the Masonic Temple alone. And that's only one organization. So, you know, it points to the popularity of these groups, especially at that time period in the mid-20th century. At least some of these organizations are still active, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, at the very beginning, you mentioned the Masonic Temple that's right down the street from our research library. The infrastructure certainly still exists. The numbers have dropped off you know, into the 21st century, so they're really not as popular with younger generations— But they are certainly still alive and kicking, if you will. And there are lodges throughout Florida. There are Masons, Oddfellow Lodges. There are African-American groups. There are certain immigrant groups, the Sons of Italy, for example, that are still very popular and still exist throughout Florida. So there is still a draw, I think, even though the mission may have evolved a little bit and continues to evolve. I think they'll still exist and continue to flourish throughout the 21st century. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources
0: for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to find out more about Fraternal Societies in Florida and see the journals we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. No order can no so noble a toast, As a free and accepted nation This is Florida Frontiers. In the novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Zora Neale Hurston describes how a hurricane in South Florida devastated a community of migrant workers. Holly Baker has this look at the real hurricane of 1928 and its impact on people in Belle Glade.
3: I recently spoke to historian Dr. Aaron Conlin from Indiana University in Pennsylvania about the history of migrant labor in Florida. Dr. Conlin is the author of an article featured in the spring 2018 Florida Historical Quarterly titled Work or Be Deported, Florida Growers in the Emergence of a Non-Citizen Agricultural Workforce. In the early 1900s, more than 10,000 Bahamians streamed into Florida, particularly South Florida, to harvest seasonal crops. Soon after, black communities with seasonal migrant workers sprung up around Lake Okeechobee. So right around Lake Okeechobee is where
4: most of the early agriculture is happening. If people are familiar with that area, you're talking about towards the Everglades. There is what they call the muck soil, where something is mucky. It's dark. It's you know it seemingly is rich, and people are like, we're going to make this stuff grow. Turns out it's actually not that easy. There are a lot of issues. They decide to do sugar there first. Turns out to be a disaster for most of them. Most of the sugar companies are going to go broke. But eventually they start draining off portions of the lakes and the areas, and they realize with the right kind of combination of fertilizers that they're able to grow crops in these soils.
3: The community of Bell Glade was built in 1925 when the federal draining project around Lake Okeechobee shored up acreage for agriculture. Known for its rich soil, Bell Glade became known as Muck City. The migrants around Lake Okeechobee carried out backbreaking work under exploitative conditions while also living in 10 shacks with no electricity or running water. The soil is terrible to work in workers would talk about getting home and where it just felt
4: like they were getting bitten by flies all over their body and there were no flies, but it was the soil irritating their skin and it's tiny and it's porous. Wind kicked up, it would get up into your nose and it would burn your eyes and it just, it was everywhere. It was in your hair, it was under your fingernails, it was in your clothing. So it just constantly was rubbing and just these really terrible working conditions there.
3: Migrant farm laborers not only experienced difficult work environments and abysmal living conditions, but they also had to contend with destructive storms and natural disasters. On September 16, 1928, a powerful category four hurricane struck Palm Beach County. The heavy rainfall caused Lake Okeechobee to overflow. Bell Glade, Pahokee, South Bay, and other surrounding communities were flooded. In 1928, you have this massive hurricane that rips through Florida.
4: It passes through West Palm Beach where it causes some damage, but then it just decimates Okeechobee and Belle Glade. In a lot of ways, it's kind of reminiscent of what we saw with Hurricane Katrina, where you have the levees are breached, right? As the storm is stalling out over this lake, it just doesn't have the infrastructure in place to keep that much water back. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's cresting over, it's breaking through and Belgrade and other communities are absolutely decimated as a result of it.
3: The devastating storm known as the 1928 Okeechobee hurricane destroyed everything in its path. The majority of the storm victims in Florida were Black migrant farm workers, many of them from the Bahamas. Dr. Conlin, There was an estimated, again, we don't have the exact figures, but probably
4: 2,500 people who died as a result of that storm. The vast majority of those were Black workers. We don't know anything else about them in terms of you know where they were coming from. We do know some of them would have had Bahamian connections because a lot of the families in the area did have connections to the Bahamas. And we partly don't have any record of that because after the storm passes, basically the communities went through and they gathered up all of the white bodies and they put them in caskets and they buried those in plots. And then they took all of the black bodies and dumped them often in unmarked graves. And so there's again, no record in life and there's no record in death of who people were. And so you have these
3: communities then that have sort of suffered this long history of neglect and oversight. A road was constructed over part of the unmarked mass grave at what's now the corner of Tamarind Avenue and 25th Street near downtown West Palm Beach. In 1937, African-American writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston examined the Okeechobee hurricane and its effects on black migrant workers. In her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Zora Neale Hurston memorialized the hurricane in her famous novel, but sadly the victims were mostly forgotten by Florida history. Had this storm decimated West Palm Beach, We would all know the name of it, but instead it happens over this
4: impoverished, predominantly Black community of farm workers, and there's virtually no history of that, that there's just not much said about it. Again, it's only been recently that it's kind of worked its way into people's consciousness as they were starting to do some construction projects and stumbling across these mass grave sites and realizing, okay, we probably need to figure out where people are buried and if there's any way we can uncover a little bit of this history.
3: In recent decades, the forgotten hurricane victims have finally been recognized. In 2003, on the 75th anniversary of the hurricane, the city of West Palm Beach placed a historical marker at the location where nearly 700 black victims of the storm were buried in an unmarked grave after they were transported from the Belle Glade area. Another marker at the Port Mayaca Cemetery in Martin County indicates the location of a mass grave of about 1,600 victims of the 1928 hurricane. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.